John chapter 11, you can go ahead and open there as we um, think about this uh, passage about uh, probably one of the more well-known stories, at least names in the Bible, uh, would be the man of Lazarus. Uh, And in the the story that we're going to read, we'll see three main characters. There's Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. They live in a a little town about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And uh, they were people, uh, the scripture says, that Jesus loved. He had a really close relationship with them. And Jesus will be informed of an illness that Lazarus has, yet he ends up arriving four days after he has passed away. I remember hearing uh, in the fourth grade, sitting in uh, Luna Watson's fourth grade class at Monroe Elementary School, and hearing uh, my name called over the loudspeaker, said, Mrs. Mrs. Watson, please send Bryce Butler to the office. And so I got up and I go down to the office and uh, my mom was out in the car waiting for me and the announcement we had been waiting for for uh, a year or so uh, that my dad had died. And I remember getting into the car and not really understanding all that that meant, but knowing that uh, even though my parents had divorced several years before that, uh, that my dad no longer would be with us. I remember a pain piercing my heart, of course, and yet not knowing as a a little, um, I guess, eight-year-old what exactly that would mean. I, growing up, the youngest, uh, really, not only my family, but the youngest cousin Uh, My dad was one of 13 children, and so as they all began to have children who were my cousins, I was on the the young end of that. So I grew up uh, being the ring bearer in a lot of weddings. In fact, I had a little white tuxedo that that I owned, and probably six different times I was at a different cousin's wedding. And uh, In fact, just a couple of years ago, I was uh, back at a little reunion because my nephew was married back in the Tulsa area, and one of the older cousins... I didn't even remember uh, that I was the ring bearer in his wedding, but uh, he started telling me a story about how he was there as one of the groomsmen, and I was apparently a little chatterbox when I was little, and so I was up on the platform, and I was chattering away while the wedding ceremony was going on, and he just kind of gently tapped my, my lips to tell me to be quiet, and guess what I did? The honorary youngest little kid in my family. I chomped down on his finger. <laughs> I had no memory of that, but he sure did, and... Uh, but growing up, I, I was the ring bearer in a lot of weddings, uh, but also I attended a lot of funerals growing up as a kid. And, um, and I remember early on having, um, I, I think it's a healthy appreciation for death, and uh, as I've kind of matured in that, but it's always been part of my life, just being around death and sort of accepting it as part of, of what uh, life is, is, and there's a beginning and an end to it, and Uh, Often we, as people, we associate pain and difficulty in our lives as things that are always to be uh, avoided and rejected, right? Pain and difficulty. We, We at all costs try to avoid that and reject it, and nobody really wants to live with discomfort and pain, do we? Of course not. Not for very long anyway. And so we work and work and struggle um, to wonder why God sometimes isn't acting immediately into a particular situation. Have you ever struggled with that? Wondered about that? Man, I'm in pain. I've got this worry that uh, I can't do anything about, and yet God doesn't yet, hasn't done anything to meet the need. Does God really still love me? Can he really work in this situation? Does he even notice 
the anguish that I am in right now. But is it possible, of course, that God can be doing more in our lives and through our lives, perhaps precisely because of these difficulties, than merely him dealing with the immediate crisis or removing the immediate pain or uh, inserting himself in the midst of the struggle. Be assured he is there, but sometimes we don't always know that. Many were blessed this past week to go and hear the testimony of a woman named Catherine Wolfe over at Hillside Church in Corte Madera. And um, I just pulled off uh, several paragraphs of off of their website, and I uh, wanted to share them with you um, because they, they have sensed God leading them into a ministry of hope and healing and uh, offering that to others. And so I want to share these few paragraphs uh, about Catherine and Jane Wolfe and their ministry. We met and graduated from Sanford University in Birmingham, Alabama. After marrying in 2004, we moved to Malibu, California, where Jay attended Pepperdine Law School, and Catherine pursued a career in the entertainment industry. In April of 2008, at the age of 26, Catherine suffered a massive brainstem stroke while six-month-old James slept in the next room. She was not expected to live or recover, but as you may have guessed, she did both. In the time since the stroke, she has relearned to eat, to speak, and to walk, Though all those things look very different than they did before, many other obstacles remain from double vision to deafness, facial paralysis to lack of fine motor coordination in her hand, even a small brain aneurysm, which was removed in November 2013. And yet, hope remains also. We celebrate the beauty and the pain because each day is a gift from God. We know that all too well. Seven years later, our lives are moving forward in directions we never could have imagined. How many years later? Seven years later. We've been so grateful to share our story and our hope through many different forums online, in person, and in print. We've been given a platform and a stewardship that we cannot deny. Though we don't exactly know how the future will unfold, we are leaping forward in faith in the full-time ministry of Hope Heals. That's the name of their ministry. We like to think of ourselves as missionaries of hope. Isn't that a good title? Missionaries of hope. Messengers who have come a long way to bring the good news that hope in Christ heals our souls. Hope is a powerful force. It charges us to live in the present as if we already knew the end of the story. It makes a previously saved drowning rat keep swimming on for days in the hopes of another rescue. It allows a concentration camp survivor to endure the living hell at the thought of impending liberation. It inspires a young stroke survivor to keep living a beautiful life, though it looks so different than she ever thought it would. The experience of true hope and make you do things you never thought you could. For us, hope has not been in good thoughts or the positivity of the human spirit. As nice as those are, those things fade shockingly fast when you experience the deepest pains of life. The hope we desperately cling to with every fiber of our being is the only true hope that heals hope in Jesus Christ. 
one day mend all broken bodies and broken hearts. Hope that he will create new life and breathtaking beauty out of the ashes of death. Hope that he will withhold no good thing from us because he loves us that much. This hope has the power to heal us in the place that is most deeply broken, our souls. It enables us to keep swimming, to walk through hell if we must, and to live. We are neither Bible teachers nor theologians. We are more like starving beggars telling the others where to find the free bread. We don't know much, but we do know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news for us all. Through some of the darkest storms this broken world has to offer, we have experienced a God of love and redemption and hope as the years go by. Through His grace, our souls become more steadfastly anchored in Him. We are not undone by the wind and the waves, and that long-awaited shore gets clearer and brighter and closer. Uh, my wife Susan had the opportunity to be at the, uh, the sharing that they did this past Wednesday, and uh, she got a book and inside the on the... Uh, page, uh, a little note was written, um, something like, God bless you, and then the, the verse, uh, Hebrews six nineteen was written there, a verse that held me during some of the difficult times of this past year, even through this church, and here's the verse, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf, he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You see, in our story today, the disciples are confused. They're uncertain about what's happening. They're thinking that Lazarus is just sick and he's going to recover. They don't know that he's dead. Jesus is talking about knowing that on the horizon, his hour, his, his moment that he had come to earth to die on the cross, that it was approaching Yet between this moment and that, he would continue to be the light bearer and to bring light into dark places. The disciples are talking about death, their own death and Jesus's. They, they knew that they were up in a particular region in the north and they knew that if they, they returned south, that Jesus had just left there and people were ready to execute him at that point. And Thomas even says, guys, let, let's go with him and we're going to die with him too. Pretty sobering, right? Jesus is talking about death, but he's also talking about reaching beyond death to the life that he provides. You see, in the intensity of crises, whether it's health, a health crisis, a fear of the future, a death in the family, the loss of a job, children who are not doing well for whatever reason, a loved one who is aging and anticipating their transition from this earthly life, we can become bewildered. And confused and panicked and wondering where God is and what he is doing. Psalm 40 out of the message translation says this, I waited and waited and waited for God. At last he looked and finally he listened. He lifted me out of the ditch. He pulled me from deep mud. He stood me on a solid rock to make sure I wouldn't slip. He taught me how to sing the latest God song. A praise song to our God. More and more people are seeing this. They enter the mystery, abandoning themselves to God. So that is our background in the chapter that we're going to read and just a couple of reflections over it. As we enter into the story, 
John has been, the gospel writer John has been giving us many uh, indications about who Jesus is. He's, Jesus has been doing these miracles and these particular signs pointing out uh, that he can miraculously take uh, a little boy's lunch and feed over 5,000 people. That he can heal the wounded and the ill. That he can actually speak to a storm and the winds will stop and the waves become placid. And yet, a question remains, can Jesus really do something about death? The Apostle Paul describes death as the last enemy in our world. And can Jesus, if he really is this one promised of God, can he really do something about death? And the answer is a resounding yes. How far did his power extend? Well, the word, uh, the name Lazarus is likely a, an abbreviated form of a common Hebrew name, Eleazar, which means God assists. So God comes into Lazarus's life and assists him in this moment. Let's read together John chapter 11. We're going to read a good portion of it and then just a couple of reflections before we conclude this morning. John chapter 11, the Bible says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you and yet you're going back there. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble for he sees by his world, by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, or the twin, he said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. Verse 17, On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Mary said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, now hear this, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. 
Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher's here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. He said, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. The psalmist writes, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you, God, are with me. You see, Jesus is pointing us toward what is real. Death may have grabbed hold of Lazarus, but in this passage, Jesus is the one who grabs hold of death. I remember back, way back in the year 2000, during the Olympics in Sydney. Do you remember those Olympics? Uh, I remember the, one of the big instruments, the didgeridoos, is that what they're called? The big, uh, I loved, it was the first time I heard those, and uh, I, I've always enjoyed the Olympics, and I like the, the stories around the athletes and where they've come from and uh, what, how hard they've worked to get to where they are. And uh, I had never really heard of Greco-Roman wrestling. I, I knew freestyle wrestling, but I'd never heard of Greco-Roman wrestling. And all of a sudden, I was thrust into this whole new sport that I was unfamiliar with. And of course, as TV loves to do, they were building up the the metal rounds and, uh, you know, bringing me, and I, I was just wholeheartedly embracing it and uh, walking me right to the edge of the crescendo. What would happen now in this gold medal match between uh, Rulon Gardner, a farm boy from Wyoming, and uh, Alexander Kirilov? Let me get his name right. <laughs> Carolyn. Alexander Carolyn. Now, Alexander Carolyn was a beast of a man. He stood about six foot, four inches tall, chiseled physique. 
He weighed about 280 pounds. Now, I want to tell you, 280 pounds with very little body fat, that is an imposing figure. Now, this man had not been beaten for over nine years as he entered into the Olympics. He had not even had a point scored against him in over six years. He had won multiple world championships. He had won three gold medals. He was from Russia. He was known as, as the bear. I mean, he looked every part of it, a menacing, imposing figure. And here, Roland Gardner, somebody who never, you'd never heard of, no one had heard of him in the rest of the world, ends up in the gold medal match. And you might know the story. Um, as they go on, there was only one point scored right toward the end of the match, and it was the American wrestler, Rulon Gardner. Now, I grew up uh, a child of the Cold War, right? So anytime you pit American and Russian things, even back in the year 2000, it was, it was quite a patriotic moment. And I was like, yes! I love the fact that this man who was the great underdog, who no one thought could beat the man who was invincible, yet in that match wrestled him down to the ground, and not only won the match, but won the gold medal. And you see, in this story in John chapter 11, people have come, and Lazarus, he's dead. And the question for Jesus was, Jesus, I know you've healed people from sickness. I know you've done miracles of math, like we talked about last week, and the multiplying of a few fish and a few small loaves into feeding thousands with leftovers. That was such a great detail in that story. I know you can speak to a storm and that it, the waves will stop and the wind will die down because you've demonstrated that you have authority over even nature itself. But can you really have something to say over the final enemy and death? Can you really take someone like Lazarus, who in a Hebrew mindset had already passed over into Sheol, the place of the dead, and could Jesus somehow, if he's really the Son of God, could he reach through and grab hold of that life and demonstrate yet again his authority and that he really is the Son of God and the long-awaited Messiah. And that is exactly what Jesus does, is he reaches through this story and he grabs death by the throat and he wrestles it to the ground. And he says, I am victorious over death. Isn't that good news? Hallelujah. And if that isn't enough, in just a few short chapters in the Gospel of John, Guess what? Jesus himself dies. And three days later, he rises from the dead to show us again that indeed he has the victory over life's final and ultimate adversary, which is death. That he can actually deliver what he promises, and that is a relationship with God. That he can take us who are dead in our spirits, and he can enliven us again in him. And take us who have separated ourselves from God, and he can reunite our lives in him through his life. You see, that's what baptism is a picture of. It's a picture that we are choosing to die to ourselves so that we might live for God. Just as Jesus died and was raised from the dead, so we die to ourselves so that we can be born again, born from above, coming up out of the baptism waters to proclaim to the world that Jesus really does make new life. Jesus really has wrestled death to the ground and put his foot on its throat and saying, I am victorious over death. Jesus really is the one who is the resurrection and the life, the resurrection and the life. Did you notice the word belief littered throughout the passage? Do you believe this? Jesus would ask. 
Do you believe this? He prays to the Father, I've said these things so that they might believe. In other words, to us this morning, do you trust the Jesus who says, I am the resurrection and the life? Do you trust in his life for your own? God may have healed, he may have multiplied, he may have spoken to the storm, he may have worked in somebody else's life, but will I really wait for him? Will I seek him? Will I trust him? Jesus is the one. He is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is. Father, we thank you for this reminder this morning that you have taken this ultimate and final adversary of ours, death, the result of our sin, and you have conquered it. And you have given that victory and made it available to us if we would give our lives to you, confessing our sin as Melanie has done today if we would receive your forgiveness into our lives, if we would choose to walk with you in humility and obedience and to continuously set you before us. God, I pray that if anyone here this morning has not understood you as the one who defeats death and can provide life both now and forevermore, that they would come this day giving their lives to you in trust and faith that you are the resurrection and the life. In Jesus' name we pray it together. Amen.